Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. One of the things that I was really interested in was making sure that our test data was of the highest possible quality. No compromise, no shortcuts, absolutely the best possible. Because with that, we could build a great foundation for how to deploy our products safely and reliably. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to episode 142 of Suncast Solar Warriors. Costa Nicolau has been at the helm of Panel Claw since its inception, guiding that company to a 40% market share of the flat roof solar racking market. And as employee number one, he has watched as the racking market has exploded to a healthy little $1.5 billion niche. That's right. Costa's energy and enthusiasm are infectious, but we also dig in to some hard-won lessons, like how much it costs Panelclaw to get into and out of the low-margin ground mount solar racking business. So be sure to stick around for all his stories and insights. Of course, you can find the show notes along with other great founders' stories and solar startup advice in 140-plus episodes archived over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out our Suncast tribe my inner circle of listeners and trusted advisors who receive exclusive content that goes beyond the scope of these episodes. Click the Become a Member button to learn more. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, Solar Warriors, we're here with another longtime leader in the solar industry from the northeast of the United States, Mr. Costa Nicolau. He's been leading the company known as Panel Claw since its founding in 2007 as employee number one for the company. He's well adept at marketing and international business and in fact leads the sales has since the beginning of Panel Claw. Sits on the board of directors for that company. He came to our industry by way of financial services consulting, is himself uh, an immigrant to our great country, studied uh, at the great University of Tufts, which I know he's proud of and often uh, serves as a, as a speaker and, uh, and teacher there. And speaking of speaking, Costa is fluent uh, not only in English, but Spanish and Portuguese and probably a number of other languages, having lived in Brasilia. So maybe we'll touch on that as well today. But first of all, welcome Costa to Suncast. Uh, Thank you, Nico. It's an honor uh, to be on your podcast. I mentioned that you weren't always in the solar industry. Can you give me an idea of your first exposure into solar and how you decided that you were going to focus your career here? I mean, you know, you got 12 years with your first company and and Panelclaw is effectively the market leader for rooftop racking. Tell me about how this all came about for you. Yeah, it was uh, it was really interesting. I was in financial services consulting in the boardrooms of the likes of Merrill Lynch, Oppenheimer, Smith Barney. I was doing quite well, learning a lot from my mentor, uh, Steve Delano and Tom Delano at a company called Market Metrics. I really wasn't looking for a job. I was uh, rising through the ranks, having a lot of fun, doing really well, making a ton of money until I went out uh, to a bar with a uh, set of my college roommates from Tufts. We were just catching up, having drinks together. 
Uh, and in the midst of that, uh, one of my college uh, roommates, Will Thompson, whom had entered the renewable solar sector with his high school friend, uh, Dan Leary, approached me about an opportunity to build a company that a group of investors was willing to put money in based on an idea of a mounting system. Over drinks, I'll have to tell you that I admitted to knowing zero about solar. Uh, I thought he was talking about hot water heating. Uh-huh. Uh, and mounting systems was even more foreign to me. But as he described uh, what the opportunity was and talked a little bit about uh, the companies that were in the space, uh, it, he really piqued my interest. So I went home that night and stayed up until four in the morning uh, researching the solar sector and looking at companies like Unirac and Sunlink mm. and Solar Dock and PowerLight who were in the mounting system space and putting those against this concept of a product that he had uh, sort of mentioned to me over a beer. Uh, I woke my wife up and said, I think I'm switching careers that very night. You came from a consulting background and there's a lot that folks glean as consultants that I consider sort of a toolkit. I'd be curious to know, stepping into your first entrepreneurial role, running Panel Claw, what do you feel like you brought from your time as a consultant at Market Metrics that really helped you grow as an entrepreneur and a leader? You know, it's really interesting, Nico. I'm going to say data. Steve Delano and the leadership team at Market Metrics, my prior company, uh, really taught me that if you have garbage in, you can only get garbage out. You can't get better than garbage out. And so being in the mounting system space and, and building a company from scratch, one of the things that I was really interested in was making sure that our test data for our product was of the highest possible quality. No compromise, no shortcuts, absolutely the best possible. Because with that, we could build a great foundation for how to deploy our product safely and reliably. And, and that's paid dividends. Uh, I didn't know what data we should collect. I hired a bunch of really good, smart experts to collect that data, but always made sure that it was the highest possible quality. And really, when you look at mounting systems, Nico, mounting systems, people think of as just bent metal. But the crux of a product is not just the engineering and how you design it and how you push it through a roll form. It's just as important, if not more important, how you deploy it. And the deployment requires data and know-how, a massive amount of data and know-how to do it right. Was there anything that particularly surprised you getting going? You were surrounded by incredible entrepreneurs and mentors and leaders. What really caught you off guard as you were getting this company going? Uh, The complete lack of innovation uh, in the structure space. Uh, The modules, boy, there was a ton going on and there still is. Uh, Inverters, they were evolving at breakneck speed. One of the reasons I took the job with Panoclaw was that night I literally researched the competitors or the companies uh, that Will told me to look at. And when I looked at their web pages, I saw that they've been around for five, six, seven years and they had never launched anything but one product. Yeah. And that was just shocking to me. So we saw an opportunity to come in and innovate. Uh, at that time, I remember very clearly, I was working in the EPC at the time. Everyone bought racking locally, right? So there weren't any Chinese manufacturers really trying to break into the market yet. There were a few that had, that had sort of come in and they were as, uh, I'll, I'll say, discredited as many people had uh, sort of discredited in their mind about Chinese modules at the time. And yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see that a, a lot of the racking companies just sort of looked the same. It was mostly a sales and marketing game and support, right? Like I remember very clearly using one of the early competitors uh, and leaders in the market simply because they had built out the best engineering team and would do free layouts. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what kind of competitive advantage is this that I use them because they give me layouts? You know, as a component provider, I I worked in solar modules and 
as a component provider, you can often just get beat down as a commodity in the business. And it's a tough area to survive and, and thrive and grow and stick around for 10 years. So first of all, kudos for that. I'm curious, are there certain things as a component provider that you have to deliver or you won't be able to live and survive? Uh, yeah, there are a couple. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right, Nico. It's a very tough market to be in the component space. Uh, you know, the phrase, the poop runs downhill, really applies to the component side. Uh, we're, we're near the bottom of that trough. Uh, so, yeah, there were a couple of things that we did in the early days that, that really have paid dividends. Uh, the first one was we didn't apologize for cost out. Uh, we actually drove cost out unabashedly. We said, look, Selling racking at a dollar a watt is not going to drive market. We got to drive this cost to the floor without sacrificing quality and reliability. And we have to do it as fast as possible. So when you imagine doing a VC pitch or an investor pitch where you're saying, you're going to drive your margins, your costs down to the floor, you're going to drive prices down to the floor, and you're going to try to hold on to margins for dear life while you're doing that. Oh, and at the same time, you have to deliver more services with higher reliability than ever before. Uh, it's not something that investors are used to hearing, but we set out to do that on day one. We wanted to get to that floor as fast as possible with the highest reliability possible. And we're there. We're very close to there. Yeah, it's interesting. And a lot of folks could look at that and say, I don't know, where in the industry today, you look at it and go, I don't know how they're achieving that price. And, so, and as such, I'm never going to buy their product. I don't want to know what's embodied in seemingly like unbelievably low price. How do you avoid that? Yeah, well, that's the second part. Anybody can deliver cheap. Uh, you can go out and hire somebody to design a very, very cheap mounting system or a cheap panel. But that alone is not nowhere near enough. And the buyers globally are much more sophisticated today than they were back in 2007 when we en entered the space. They're starting to dig under the data rock. They've been digging under that data rock. And they've also now have had the experiences of the cheap stuff failing. I'm looking at still at resin-based systems that have been around for 10 years now starting to do the things that we thought they were going to do in years 10, 11, or 12. They're starting to crack, become brittle, and collapse. They're starting to succumb to thermal expansion and contraction and become snakes on the roof. The market will self-correct. My, my fear is uh, a fear of failures that become public uh, because that swings the pendulum on financing. That swings the right. pendulum on permitting. That swings the pendulum on codes and standards from underdeveloped to unreasonable. We've ensured that as we've driven cost out, we have maintained the high standards of quality for the data, the testing that we do on our products, and how we take that data and testing and apply it to our design and deployment envelope. And that's led us to 40% market share and the best reliability and flat roof. So it hasn't been accidental. Yeah. Well, I think it's a fascinating story and it's one that I've been following and, and appreciating from afar. And, you know, I think that it stands to... Uh, to your testament of clearly thought out rollout plan and, uh, you know, kudos to you that a lot of folks say early on market entry, there are various different strategies uh, among them, be the low, uh, the low price leader to gain market share, but then institute quality. And as you put data such that you can hold on to that market share when the curve naturally rises back to a level of profitability. Because early on, you're you're making a bet that the cost out is gonna that your that your market share gain, i.e., volume, is gonna match with your production cost curves that you're basically forward pricing to, <laughs> and the level of services you have to you have to offer and provide, like free layouts, right? Yeah. To support your structures, yeah. uh, while lowering the price and growing your volume, presumably growing the organization that you need behind you to support it. 
in that world where like you have to come in and, and be disruptive, how do you think about raising money to support that? Right. Are you looking at 18 months, seven years? Like, what did that look like for you? How much did you go after? Like, how did you structure that? Yeah. So one of the lessons that my other mentor, Henri Claude Bailly, uh, taught me really early on, and he's one of our uh, lead investors, was that don't raise more money than you know what to do with, because then you just have to burn it. And if you burn it and have nothing to show for it, then you don't have a company anymore. You just have to get caught in that cycle of raising more to raise more. So Panel Claude never raised more money. Uh, than we needed. We we learned from the early days to live within our means. But the other the other piece that was really important for us was to make sure that as we grew, we threw automation and efficiency at growth versus bodies at growth. And the other thing we did was we decided with one small foray into ground mount uh, to become the best at what we do at one thing. And that one thing is the deployment of flat roof structures. And today we have an internal goal with what we're doing with our new hardware platform and our new software platform to take the cost of a one megawatt rooftop system deployment and make it match or be better than the cost of a one megawatt ground mount deployment. And think about the awesomeness of that task and what that does for our space. And we're going to do it. Uh, We're going to do it in very short order. Well, hold that thought. I definitely want to talk about the innovative ways that you are targeting price parity. Before we do that, let's uh, jump to a segment I call hot or hype. If you're familiar with the show, this is where I spend some time on uh, certain topics and maybe perhaps markets as well. You can spend 30 to 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or hype and why. And we'll start with microgrids, a topic that is uh, that is bubbly, maybe even frothy in certain parts of the U.S. and not the others, but globally, it's certainly a topic of uh, concern. So hype in the U.S., hot globally, places where there's no electrification, Africa, India, Uh, parts of South America, Mexico, microgrids can play a very meaningful role very quickly. Uh, In the U.S. and other places where there is an established far-reaching grid, uh, microgrids are going to be uh, take a while uh, to come to fruition, and they will require uh, storage software uh, and changing the interaction uh, between grid and user. Yeah, I may have to start modifying this because uh, Puerto Rico just validated the term mini-grid, didn't they? Uh, we've got uh, the, recent, the recent news that Puerto Rico uh, Prepa will be broken into effectively eight mini grids across the island, which is fantastic, right? Like what an yeah. accomplishment in, <laughs> in, uh, to, to see the, the turmoil that they've gone through. And uh, any racking manufacturer in the U.S. has had to deal with the start and stop uh, sort of market that is Puerto Rico. Similarly, I'd love to hear your you thoughts. Know what's funny? As, yeah, go for it. We had 20,000 solar panels installed on roofs in Puerto Rico alone, never mind the other stuff that was on the path of the storms in other islands last, uh, during Irma and Maria. And uh, less than 2% damage to wreck and including wow. damage due to debris. That's the value of data and knowing how to deploy it, Nico. And when you talk about grid and grid resiliency, and you focus on the panels and the inverters, yeah. uh, in places like Puerto Rico, the entire system matters. Boy, some of those systems continue to produce during the storms, uh, which is an awesome testament to our sector. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you lived in Brasilia. You speak Portuguese and Spanish. I know that you have a particular soft spot, as I do, for Latin America. I'm curious, not necessarily in a hot or hype scenario per se, what are your broader thoughts on LATAM? It was the fastest growing solar market in the world for a few years. It's migrated, as most markets do, to being really focused on utility. Is there room for the business that you're in, the DG rooftop business, broadly in Latin America, or is that, is that hype? Is it ever going to come about? 
Uh, it will come about, uh, and it will come about because uh, in most places in the world, consum- consumer choice matters. Uh, and when you have a centralized grid that just delivers power and doesn't have to earn the business of the consumer, uh, and you have an option on the other side where the consumer has a choice, eventually that consumer choice does come about. So I can't predict the timing. Um, but I do know that distributed energy resources that deliver consumer choice will be something that happens globally. Any particular markets that you've got your eye on? I think Chile is is pretty advanced, uh, mostly because policy and uh, the business environment in Chile is very similar to the business environment that we are used to here in the United States. There are organ institutions that are in place to allow for these markets to develop. And it's also one of the more mature solar markets, even though it's mostly utility in South America. I think Brazil has tremendous potential, but it's going to continue to get in its way and the new government certainly won't help. How do you think about Brazil as a manufacturer where there's a strong preference for local manufacturing in that country? Well, that, that is precisely the challenge in Brazil. Uh, it's not just a strong preference, it's a requirement. Uh, if you try to import something that competes on price against fossil fuels or hydro, it, it's very difficult when you have an import tax and mm-hmm. uh, transporting materials across the country without being a local company in Brazil is almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, so you almost have to set up manufacturing there, which the panel manufacturers have done. You mentioned Colombia. Interestingly, Colombia also very developed market infrastructure-wise, uh, deregulated energy market, a lot of industry. A lot of industry that folks, frankly, aren't quite aware of. One of the largest uh, fenestration manufacturing companies in the world is in Colombia. And there's a lot of uh, steel extrusion, notably uh, Gestamp's tracker division now has a manufacturing facility in Colombia. Are you, as a primarily U.S.-based company, thinking about flexible manufacturing deployment throughout the Americas? We are actually multinational. Um, Our majority of our business today comes from the U.S., but we have a partner in Europe, uh, Sunfixings, that services that market. And we we have a a very small amount that has been done in Europe, only 100, just over 100 megawatts in Mm -hmm. rooftop in Europe through other prior partnerships. Uh, Essentials GmbH was another partner we had there. Uh, and then we're in India uh, with wow. a partner called Ganges International. And uh, our manufacturing right now is domestic and international for our current product. Um, so we, we have experience with global supply chains, but we're a very specialized company. We focus on flat roof. And mm-hmm. as a specialist, we only want to enter from a position of strength. We don't yeah. want to enter into a market and dabble in it and do a project here or there. Uh, when we enter, we, we, we want to own it. So right now we own the U.S. We want to make sure that it stays that way and it grows. And then only from there will we really look at uh, exploiting more than just Europe and India. Very interesting. Well, let's move to the next topic in hot or hype. Vehicle to grid, the nexus of DG and e-mobility. Hot or hype? Absolutely hot, uh, unequivocally. And it, it ties into a lot of what we talked about already uh, relating to distributed energy resources, batteries, along with solar and the amount of money that China is pouring into hmm. uh, storage technology development to drive out its cost. I mean, if you follow what they're doing, they're pouring more money into energy storage than they did into bringing PV modules to scale. Uh, and you know what happened to PV modules, their prices yeah. as, they, as they got to scale. So storage is coming. The train has stopped. It's not hot or hype anymore. Yeah. It's the past. For it's sure. It's a matter of how fast. And I've taken storage completely. DG starts all of it. I've taken it out of this segment because it's, uh, you know, over the last year and a half, really, like, golly. I wonder, though, because you have such insight into exactly what you mentioned, uh, the leaders who are pouring money in. We've got BYD. Who else? do you see surfacing in that is really uh, taking a leadership stance in storage? 
I don't have their names, but there are 100 companies within a few percentage points of the cost of BYD in China. Wow. Uh, and so there are at least 100 companies in China within a few percentage points of what BYD and Samsung and LG and Sony can, can do. Uh, so it, it, it is just a matter of how fast. Uh, there is no if. There hasn't been an if for a few years. That's amazing. Uh, it's just a matter of how fast will it come in, how smart will it be. Yeah. Um, so software will play a massive role in the grid edge. Well, you know, looking at software, a lot of folks have over the last, uh, with, the, with the rise of cryptocurrency, the, the very nature of what blockchain can or should do has been sort of in the, in the news, in the, in the zeitgeist. I always like to ask whether or not blockchain as it relates to energy is still hype or if that's actually a hot sector right now. It will absolutely be hot when paired with the advent of storage and 5G. Uh, I think those three things together, resources that can be deployed using storage versus spinning up plants, uh, stored electrons versus electrons that have to be spun up uh, and peaker plants. When you take storage with blockchain and its ability to develop or deliver at one second intervals or better, mm -hmm. a price signal based on millions of dispersed energy resources, and then communicate that via incredibly rapid networks of communication powered by 5G uh, can really change the way that utilities have to behave and IPPs have to behave. And I think that is absolutely the future in this country of the way that electrons are delivered and sold to consumers. Storage, 5G and blockchain, making sure that the transactions are accurately priced. I was going to finish off with uh, if there were markets or market mechanisms that you think are hype or hot. And I, I hear you in our conversations prior as well as now hearkening to 5G. I mean, many might say, right, 5G is inevitable. Others would say, well, it's still, in, it's still nascent. Nobody's really deployed it yet. How do you see 5G transforming energy? A lot of folks think, and I'll, and I'll caveat that with like, people look at 5G and think, oh, Internet of Things, yeah, our phones will be faster, our TVs will be faster, or whatever. Connect that to energy for us. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a speed, but it's not the fact that your phone will be faster. It's the fact that your phone can receive or anything that consumes an electron can receive a price signal for the cost of the next electron instantaneously. That is something that you really have to wrap your head around. What are the ramifications of that? Uh, when your hair dryer, your laptop, your car, uh, your, your LED lights at home can receive a price signal instantaneously for a cost of the next electron, and you don't have plants that are spinning up and spinning down, you have readily available energy stored in batteries uh, that can be deployed for that next electron. This is 2030, I hope sooner than that, um, but this is coming. It's, I, I go back to the, I'm not going to name the major consulting firm that said that by the year 2000, there would only be 500,000 cell phones. Uh, in the U.S., and, and uh, <laughs> that number looked like a grain of salt at the end of the day. Exactly. Uh, for folks that think that distributed energy resources aren't coming, uh, watch out. It's going to happen a lot faster. It's the confluence of technology and know-how that's going to make it happen a yeah. lot faster than the experts say because there's a lot of money to be made in it. Hey, simple question. When was the last time you were truly delighted at a customer support interaction? My friends at Helioscope do their best to delight their customers every single day, and that's why dozens of solar developers have claimed Helioscope has the best customer support they've ever seen. Not just in the solar industry, but in all their interactions. See for yourself. Head to mysuncast.com and click the Helioscope banner on the homepage. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days to your free trial. That's 60 free days to see what Helioscope can do for you. 
find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other design program on the market. Does your current asset management software provider call just to check in? If you're already using PowerHub, well, I know your answer is yes. See, when you're using PowerHub's asset management software, your customer success specialist is your guide and advocate. PowerHub's not just a software provider, they're a partner for your growth. And their seasoned customer success team is known throughout the industry for helping developers spot and address core business inefficiencies. They have the largest customer success team in the industry for a reason, so that your business grows, not just bigger, but better, with PowerHub in your corner. Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. One of the big things that folks argue against uh, with regards to DG and using it as in the case of New York DERs for flexibility in the grid is that, you know, it's just not cost competitive with ground mount solar. And we should just build building, you know, first solar would say we should be building 300 megawatt plants out in the middle of the Mojave Desert and using those for flexible resources. You have a vision to get a run, one megawatt rooftop at grid parity with a one megawatt ground mount. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so look at where the costs are with distributed energy resources and with rooftop. That's what we've done. Where is cost? Uh, and it's not in the mounting system structures anymore. We're very close to the floor on that. Uh, if, we, if we get a penny cheaper, great, but a penny cheaper is not going to do it. Look at the panels. The panels now are, are more based on supply chain uh, and uh, supply and demand forces than they are and the technology actually improving massively. Um, over-dramatizing that a little bit. There is still more room, but the panels are, have come a very long way. And the inverters, same thing. They're just getting smarter, but the inverter technology is not advancing by leaps and bounds anymore. So what's left? What's left is the process, the transactional cost, the legal cost, the financing cost. And at PanelClaw, we're looking very much at the transactional cost. How do we work with our customers and where is their cost in the way we operate uh, and work together to get to the point where a system can be built? With utility scale ground mount, that process is highly automated and very simple and, and usually very well understood. In rooftop solar, it is nothing short of a nightmare today. Emails going back and forth, inspectors talking to engineers, talking to third parties, talking to developers with EPCs in between. Large files being transacted by email. There are a lot of transactional inefficiencies that exist, and that's a problem that can be solved through automation and software. Uh, and we have a particular set of expertise in flat roof that we know will drive out that transactional cost. And there are 50 or 60 cents in there uh, worth of transactional cost, and that's not a joke. I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around how this could be a beachhead for you from a, a competitive perspective the transfer of knowledge to the industry on best practices, which is what, it, that, what you just said sounds like to me. Yeah, let me give you a, a hard example. Yeah. Okay, maybe that will help. Uh, today, the way that we operate, the racking companies operate with their customers. Uh, I'm going to bring it back to your layout example in the beginning, is uh, you go out, uh, you find a building, you get an address, and somebody does an, a layout for how to slap the panels on that roof, how to place the panels on that roof. Um, with that, there's a group that goes out and does energy modeling uh, to figure out how many electrons you can get out of that roof. There's a group that goes out and assesses the building to figure out whether it, it can connect to the grid and what the infrastructure is for doing that. That layout then gets thrown over the fence to a racking company, and the racking company then takes that information, processes it, and sends back uh, to the customer some engineering data, and a bill of materials, and a price. 
Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of back and forth because the first thing you did was you took a Google Earth snapshot of the building and then eventually you maybe get a CAD file of the building and then later you might actually have somebody go up and walk the building uh, to see if there's anything different between the Google Earth, the CAD file, and what's actually on that roof. And throughout that entire process, there's back and forth in the design, back and forth in the bill of materials, back and forth of the engineering from the structure perspective of the racking, and that can take weeks. Well, we have a process that we think can take that two minutes. Think about that. Weeks and multiple groups being involved to let's figure out how we can take this very complex and people intensive and error intensive or uncertainty intensive process and turn it into a couple of minutes, at least on one major component of it. Uh, And then when we pair that with what the industry is doing, uh, what C is doing with the solar app initiative to standardize the permitting process nationwide, that can drive out massive amounts of cost. And when that's done, I see us competing with utility scale costs in a heartbeat. Um, Because the other thing that's happened is the cost of capital is now also becoming very competitive on the DG side. There are companies that are doing financing one project at a time, yeah, not 10 megawatts at a time or portfolios at a time, but one project at a time, cost effectively. SunWealth is one of them. Help me understand the difference between, I mean, I don't know if it's a product introduction that you guys have that takes work from weeks to minutes or if it's standardization. And how does standardization alone allow you to reduce hundreds of hours worth of work to minutes without all the bureaucracy? All right, so I can give you another specific example. So in the U.S., we have 19,000 permitting departments, and we have 50 states, all of which adopt different versions of building code at different times. From a racking perspective, the wind code is contained within ASC 7 section, mm-hmm. okay? And there are states that are in 705, 710, 716, so on and so forth. So right now, the software that's out there from racking companies is mostly focused on the the design part. How do I place the panels on the roof? And then how do I get a bill of materials and a price for that rack, those racking components? We've developed a software where you can put in the address and you can tell the software which code to apply to the engineering. Is the state or is this jurisdiction working off of ASC 710? And if you pick 710, all the calculations on the background that will yield the engineering results, which ultimately do drive the bill of materials, are going to be done based on ASC 710. Another example is FM Global. Uh, FM Global is the largest reinsurer of roofs uh, in the United States, and they have their own set of special requirements. If you don't account for those and you do your engineering and then you actually get to the point where you want to build this thing and you realize that it's an FM Global roof, things change drastically. So in our software, you can pick FM Global out of the gate and have all of the calculations done in accordance to FM Global requirements on top of code requirements. These are frictions in the market today that create a lot of back and forth and a lot of uncertainty that with our new software, you can address on day one and get the right answer instantly. And that's cost. That's real transactional cost. And so this is a software product. Is this a live product yet or is something you're still in the process of deploying? We are using it internally. We're testing it. Uh, We'll have a couple of betas uh, later this year and we plan on a market launch sometime around SPI. And you're actually the first public forum that I've talked in this much detail about that platform. Yeah, uh, that great. we're planning. Uh, the racking product's in great shape, but the software, and I think the industry needs to do this. Let's, let's talk a little bit about more than Panaqua. Sure. Uh, I think the industry needs to get there too. This will help us drive growth. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that in the back of my mind. Uh, frankly, 
back to our original conversation where you entered this market and the incumbents weren't innovating. And so uh, sort of in the back, one of the questions I wanted to drill down to is, well, all right, Costa, how is Panoclaw innovating, right? What's the, what's around the curve? It sounds like certainly software development and deployment is there. I think I heard you saying, you know, cost out, we're nearing the bottom of the, of the smile curve and the, and the margins that you're able to cost out. Are there still ways that you, uh, that you can and are innovating around the racking itself? The racking physical metal part, there's very little content that can be taken out. So when we're actually launching a new platform as we speak, it's called Claw FR. And with that platform, we focus less on taking out more metal because we didn't think we could do more, take out more metal reliably. So the, the cost and, and the price of the platform is the same. But what we were able to do was focus 18 months worth of effort with 10 years of experience behind it on how that metal gets deployed, the installation. Uh, so we focus on things like wire management, order of operations, the number of bolts and fasteners needed. We have a single bolt that gets used for the whole system with no loose nuts. The way you attach to the panel, uh, how can you hold on to that panel securely and still be able to install the panel quickly and reliably? Uh, so we focus on speed of install, and, and that's what we've delivered, a 40 to 70% faster install speed than our current product. That took massive amounts of engineering and a ton of help from our friends around the industry who came in and gave us all the feedback in this 18 month process. And speed of installs, this, this is a topic that I actually, I hear coming up, not just in rooftop deployment where it's sorely needed, but also in ground mount as all the trackers start to look alike and all the fixed mounts start to look alike, right? Like who is helping the developer minimize number of parts that have to get reordered if they're lost on site and uh, and found yeah. and wire management, et cetera. You know, I mean, a great example of that in the tracker side is the stuff that RPCS did with their with their cab management, right? The little hook that hangs underneath an ATI tracker. It's 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 a it's you look at it and you go, oh right, of course, duh, we should have created that. But it took ten years for somebody to actually introduce it to the market. Yeah. It sounds like you are a, uh, a the kind of leader who is always thinking about what's around the curve. I presume then that you also are the kind of leader who's willing to stand on principles and, and take a controversial stance. So I'd love to hear if there are anything, sort of where in the industry you hold a position that might be controversial. I think that an all-powerful national SIA, uh, along with a, a very powerful Volt Solar, versus a, a sector that has hundreds of voices uh, speaking for us and on our behalf at the local level, that the centralized group that has uh, the lobbying power, the dollars, uh, and the weight to move the industry forward mm-hmm. is the way to go. Uh, I heard to an, uh, I listened to an earlier podcast you did mm-hmm. where there are some state uh, SIA chapters that are dissatisfied with how SIA is working at the national level and they're leaving their affiliation with SIA. And I, I would urge them to think twice about that. Yes, SIA can be better. National SIA can be better. Um, but when I hear that a, a pay-to-play board uh, with SIA is bidding the the doing the bidding of the paid board members i cringe because that's that i don't believe that's further from the truth mm. uh, i am the vice chair of the dg division for sia i i am uh sit on or observe the board and sit on the board when the chair can't be on the board and one of the things that's missed by folks that say it's a pay-to-play board is that sia has elected members and also the chairs of the divisions of sia have a board seat with a vote so it's not a purely pay-to-play board, and that's a really important distinction mm-hmm. uh, because if SIA was being stir- steered in the, in the direction of doing the bidding of a few board members, there are other board members that can catch 
that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, I think SIA, uh, the knocks on SIA are a little bit overblown. I, I really hope that the uh, local chapters think about, uh, instead of separating, uh, think more about actually joining forces. And then there's a second thing that I think is, uh, is related to that that's really important. The utility lobby and the fossil lobby show up greatly unified at the state level mm-hmm. and at the federal level. They come in with one voice and one message. When you have 50, let's take the extreme, uh, let's say all 50 solar markets open up and there are, let's say, 30 regional chapters doing the bidding locally. If those regional chapters don't coordinate, we're going to miss the boat. If folks are talking about doing ABC in Vermont and doing XYZ in New York because of local requirements, but then they miss the interconnection uh, on the policy side, uh, we're going to be in trouble because I guarantee you the utilities don't miss that. Yeah. And the fossil fuel lobby doesn't miss that. So I, I'm for a national, incredibly well-funded, incredibly powered, powerful SIA and Vote Solar versus very powerful local groups. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you hearkening back to the episode with Lyle. For those who want to go back and listen to that episode, it was Lyle Rawlings. Great where episode. We talked, yeah, thank you. Where we talked about uh, the petition that was recently filed. And, you know, we don't have this, the scope or time really to go into that petition here. I would, I would encourage, as I have before, listeners to consider, regardless of your affiliation, uh, state or national, consider the impact that SIA has now and can have. I think I would point to the fact as well that um, I don't know that the points of view are that far off. Costa, your argument is that a national SIA unified voice is uh, a more powerful and effective approach against or to combat the heavy lobby weighed by the fossil fuel industry. And I definitely agree with you there. And the alternative view is yeah, and the pay-to-play board and the perspectives of the more heavily funded, mostly utility scale sort of side of the business that tends to end up on the board or has historically tended to lead the board have different agenda against fighting fossil fuels. As we mentioned before, building large plants out in the middle of the desert, particularly interesting. And, and, and therefore, the way, the nuance of how that's communicated often creates a discoordinated, disjointed dialogue at a state level when SIA comes in to try to help the local chapters. I think that's a, that's a fundamental piece that is trying to be worked out, right? But I need to correct something in what you said, because I keep hearing pay-to-play board. And yes, there are paid board members, paid board seats, but mm-hmm. there are also at-large elected seats. Here you and there are also clear. seats with a vote for the chairs of the different divisions. Yeah. And there isn't a utility division only. There's a DG division. I happen to be in it. There's a state affairs division. There's a federal affairs division and they get votes. I hear you loud and clear. So I'll ask for a clarification then. Uh, the comment that Lyle made on our episode was that if you read the fine print, paid board members have the final say. Is that accurate? Uh, I have not read the fine print. So uh, I'll go back and do that. Um, okay. But I will tell you, I, I agree that SIA is not perfect. Uh, absolutely. There are things that can be done to make SIA uh, more effective. But to say that uh, SIA does not look out for the industries of, uh, for the interests of anyone but utility scale players uh, would be incorrect and inaccurate. SIA does a lot for the DG sector. Uh, and again, I, I believe that there are things that can be done better at, at the SIA level. But if we want to do that, here's how we can do it. Yeah. Let's get every company in the DG space to join SIA. Let's put dollars behind it. There if you, you put those dollars behind it, then you become less reliant on the board seat dollars. And if you become less reliant on the board seat dollars, maybe you can instill reform from the ground up. But for as long as the DG players are sitting on the sidelines, only supporting their local CEO, their local chapters, there's not going to be any cha- much change. Yeah. 
So, uh, you know, we can implement that change too. For those who might not be familiar, and I've been an advocate of joining both your state and national SIA for a long time. For those who might not be familiar, roughly, what would the cost be for a company to join and an individual? Because there's also the element that as individuals, we can join. It's not necessarily a company effort. That's right. SIA just actually just literally reformed uh, its membership structure and dues structure. And so now for as little as $750 a year, you can join SIA and get some of the SIA benefits. It used to be that the lowest level was five, six, seven thousand, or it was tied to your top line revenue. And yeah. it was a percentage of your top line revenue, which made it difficult for some companies to join. Right. Um, but now there's a $750 membership uh, that gives you some of the benefits uh, of joining SIA. But also think about this. Uh, Lyle was absolutely right. And many others like Jig are absolutely right. This market is driven by policy and yeah. it's federal and state level policy. And so companies that spend money on marketing and don't spend any money on SIA can get a much bigger return from joining SIA than they can from a $300 ad on a magazine. If your market shuts down, that $300 ad didn't buy you anything. That's so exactly right. Folks, Panelclaw hasn't had a marketing budget in five years, and we've had a SIA membership, and we've dedicated my personal time to supporting SIA. That's how much we value it. Yeah, and tremendous advocate you are. You're always on the road traveling to advocate for our industry, and we thank you for it. Let's move into a section I call Lessons Learned. I'm curious, you know, you seem to me like the kind of person who surrounds yourself with other strong thinkers. I'd love to hear what are some key lessons or takeaways from the important mentors in your life and how you now pass those along to your team. As I mentioned, uh, Steve Delano earlier and uh, instilling the, the power of high quality data and the importance of that to building mm-hmm. a great company. Uh, Henri Claude Bailly uh, is another you know, hire very intelligent people uh, and treat them really well. Mm. Uh, make sure that you have a phenomenal team. Our turnover at Panel Claw is extremely low. And I think that's a testament to the lessons that, that I learned from HC. We have a very loyal, powerful, passionate team here. Uh, and then the last one is uh, if you're going to fail, fail big and fail fast. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the fail big and fail fast as, uh, as your final point there, because when we spoke uh, previously, you, you put some numbers around it, and I love the way you caveated it, um, how much you spent getting into the ground mount space and then how much you spent getting out. Would you care about talking about that around that topic of failure and how it influenced the, the, the movement of your company in the direction? Absolutely. And it was a pivotal moment uh, for us. So we entered the space and we very quickly captured market share from all the flat roof providers. Uh, and we got to the number one spot very quickly. And we actually, there, there are some companies that were in flat roof that are no longer in flat roof. Uh, because we just literally took their market share overnight. Mm, And so we were flush with cash that we had generated ourselves and we were looking at what we were going to do next with that that cash. And we went and looked at the same things that other racking companies had been doing. Uh, We tried to develop and design more racking products. And that was a mistake. We spent $4 million getting in and $3 million getting out of the ground mount space. And uh, that in 2012, 13, 14 was not a small amount of money for a flat roof only company. Yeah. Uh, We failed big. We got out fast and we failed hard. Uh, But we came out of it with a complete and unequivocal and unwavering focus on flat roof and transforming the way it's done. Hardware, software transactions. Uh, And that's paying dividends today. That hard failure in ground mount has made us and helped shape us into who we are today. We have an entire team that is dedicated to nothing else but flat roof for our partners and every aspect of it. 
And that's been a very powerful message in a market where all other racking companies are providing other widgets beyond flat roof. I would rather lose a project to someone else because that someone else has fewer mechanical attachments or less weight on a roof than us, then lower our standards, our data and quality standards to win that deal and take that risk of the system blowing off a roof. Saying no to that project and saying, go do it and educating our partners about what it means to saying yes to that is so much more important to me and to our team than winning that one deal and regretting it later. And and kudos to Rick. I mean, the quality of the work they do, absolutely phenomenal. It's a great company to work with. Pure Power is among the best in the industry. You are surrounded with folks that are doing game-changing things. You have touted some statistics here to give me an indication that you are always forward thinking, in particular, like thinking just thought leadership style, like what 5G is going to do for our industry. I'd like to know what has you most excited right now for solar growth in the world? What do you think is next? I think that folks are finally putting a price on fossil fuels, commensurate with what it deserves to be. Uh, They're starting to look at externalities. When you look at the next generation, the generation that's behind mine, those folks care passionately about the environment. They care deeply about leaving the world better, uh, much more so than than I think uh, I did and our grandparent, my grandparents and parents did. Uh, from an environmental perspective. And environmentalism used to be tied to tie-dye t-shirts, uh, uh-huh. hugging trees and dreadlocks. Right. Uh, and today, environmentalism is more, and more about suits, ties, and leaving the world better while still making money. So the next generation is going to carry the torch that we pass on to them, and they're mm-hmm. going to carry it and make it brighter. Uh, and that gives me a lot of hope. In the past, at least in the U.S., if you had a lot of lobbying dollars, you can go and make sure that the policy that was going to advance the interests of the interests of the fossil fuel industry uh, was going to continue to advance, and that anything that threatened it wasn't going to. What we have now with social media and the ability to first fight bad information and bad data, and second, uh, make sure that the world really knows what questions need to be asked, uh, it is a ground movement. Uh, is the possibility to create a groundswell of well-educated, well-informed, uh, well-meaning, want to make money, see the business opportunity, know how to solve it, and take action to do it. That movement continues, and solar is on the forefront of that. We cannot be stopped. We will not be stopped. And there's a wave coming behind us that's going to take what we've done and do even more amazing things with it. So I am incredibly bullish on our sector and what's coming. Well, Costa, one of the things that I believe uh, strongly around leadership is that leaders are readers. And I suspect that you believe that as well. Uh, I know that you're well-read. I'd love to know what books you have recommended or gifted the most and why. On the business side, I, I love Raising the Bar. The story of the cliff bar, uh, if you're an entrepreneur and you have mm-hmm. not read uh, Raising the Bar, uh, you should read it. It's a great book. Uh, it talks about building companies, building culture, thinking about an exit. I highly recommend that folk, that book to uh, friends of mine. Uh, when you're looking at psychology, uh, I, I love The Power of Habit. Yep. Uh, I think that's a, a very powerful book that really dumbs things down quite a bit to the point where pretty much anyone can understand mm-hmm. uh, some of the forces that drive human behavior. But on the climate front, uh, I just got this. It, it just came into print, and I'm, I'm starting to devour it. It is called Titans of the Climate, uh, Explaining Policy Process in the United States and China. Uh, and oh. it's written by Kelly Sims Gallagher and Yao, Yao Wei Wan. 
Kelly Sims Gallagher happens to be at Tufts University. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just published by MIT Press, and I am going to devour it this week. I just got it in the mail yesterday. Costa, I wonder, is there a particular habit or consistent practice in your life that has yielded the greatest impact or results? I try to challenge our team, always question our team, even when I know that they are right, even when I know what they're presenting is 100% spot on. Uh, I try to come at it from a position, from an antagonistic position. Uh, and, and in doing so, when I don't know the answer, those that come prepared with the ability to defend, typically uh, I have a lot of trust and faith in. And if they're not, I continue to question to make sure that they've thoroughly vetted an issue. So Costa, personally and uh, within the company of Panoclaw, how can people find you and learn more about what you guys are up to? Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera? Uh, Panoclaw.com, or you can call us. In this sense, we're really old-fashioned. Call our number, call our office, a person will pick up the phone, uh, and we're happy to engage in a conversation with you. Find somebody from Panoclaw, ask them questions, and we will answer them for you. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction, as we always do. What one thing, Costa, do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, I, I do think that the market's going to grow a heck of a lot faster globally than anyone is predicting. I think Jigger uh, in the early days, Jigger Shire in the early days, predicted the decrease in module panel costs. And even he was off. He was he would predicted an aggressive decrease. And when you look back, panel costs decreased even more than he predicted. Mm. Uh, and he was way out there. in in his predictions, according to everyone that was listening to them at the time. Right now, I think that the growth of the solar sector is grossly underestimated globally. We're going to grow a heck of a lot faster than IEA, IHS, GTM, and every research group out there is predicting. And we're going to do that because we have the technology, we have the people, we have the scale now to do it. And the only thing getting in the way is policy. And with policy, there's a wave coming. So watch out for the solar sector. It's going to grow a lot faster than everyone thinks. I love it. And for all of us who've been on the solar coaster or those of you solar warriors who've just joined us on this ride, that spells job security. <laughs> let's, uh, let's turn it from a coaster to a rocket. I prefer ro- rockets. Uh, I've heard the term coaster for too long. I think we're off the roller coaster now. Yeah. Uh, there will be a few ups and downs, but there will be ups and down on, uh, downs on our way to the, to the stars. So we're on a solar rocket. Uh, the coaster's done. Indeed. We're in- instituting new language and lexicon for the industry. Moving forward, we will refer to this as the solar rocket. You've all been warned. Costa, thank you so much. Costa Nicolau, CEO of Panel Claw, joining us on Suncast. Such a joy, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nico. It's been a pleasure. That's a wrap with today's solar warrior, Costa Nicolau, CEO of Panel Claw. I was frantically taking notes during our interview, and I've listed those resources and highlights over on the blog. If you'd like to have a closer look at the themes from today's discussion or just learn more about Costa and Panel Claw, then click on the Listen button at mysuncast.com, which will take you to the Episodes page, where you can get the show notes, social media, and website links and fantastic book recommendations, as well as over 140 other interviews chock full of goodies just like this waiting for you to discover. While you're there, do also check out the Suncast Tribe, where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on the member button to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter while you're there. You'll be notified each time the next episode of Suncast is out. I also share other goodies there, so go ahead, give me that email. And tribe members will be having our first office hours call tomorrow. So make sure you check your email where I've sent you the time and link to register. Hey, I'm so happy you chose to be here. Remember, 
You are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>